Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Let's go ahead and get started here, and uh, we're going to kind of have a little bit of a the deviation from what we have been doing here in the past with having specific topics. We're going to kind of have a long and winding road around some some stuff today. We were just talking a little bit about BMI and diabetes and health issues off before recording. And so we'll go ahead and we'll start with that in terms of topics for today. And so BMI is the body mass index. And basically what it is, is a, a mathematical relationship between the height of the individual and their body mass. And when it was first developed, it was first developed as a means for um, insurance back in the uh, turn of the 20th century, early 1900s. And what they found is that people who had higher mass to their height were a greater risk for life insurance. They were more likely to uh, have life issues. They were more likely to um, have early uh, deaths relative to those who had lower BMI scores. And that scoring system kind of got uh, co-opted into uh, the health talk as we got more public health stuff taking taking effect uh, as we moved through the through the 20th century. It's a good value for young children. And when we say it's a good value for young children, when we have children going through growth, we usually use what's referred to as a height weight ratio. And it's a measure to see how well the child's growing. And when we look at how well the child's growing, what we're doing is we're basically uh, indicating what is their nutrition status, because most of the growth for young children is based off of nutrition. And so children who are mal malnourished tend to not grow at rates of children who are normally nourished. But the problem is, is that a little bit is good, but too much times is bad. And so what we found is that those who were exceeding the 95% for the population was uh, in the long-term developing metabolic issue. And so what we would see is we'd see children who were at the extremes of the, 90, of the height weight ratios, those who were excessively malnourished, having developmental issues, and those who were excessively nourished, those of, who were the, the overweight children, would develop uh, metabolic issues, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes issues, both within uh, juvenility, within childhood, within adolescence, teenage years, but also later on in life as well. What we've found with more research looking at BMI is that BMI is not a very good indicator for health issues, even though we tend to use it for health issues. And it goes back to what, what we've talked about in the past about what the person looks like is not an indication of what their health status is. And so when we look at BMI, because it doesn't differentiate between uh, muscle mass and fat mass, we can't de we can't determine is it good body weight or bad body weight and mm -hmm. that's where we have the the fat mass being bad body weight and muscle mass bone mass the fat free mass being good body weight and so what's happened with the 
for lack of a better term, the pandemic of obesity based off of BMI measure. So, so when we look at terms, obesity, overweight, underweight, normal weight, all of those terms come off of BMI, which is where if we look at the, the research that, that I've put out beginning in 2010 and continuing on for the last decade and a, almost decade and a half now, I talk about overfatness as opposed to obesity. And, and that's where we can delineate between is the extra mass that the person have coming from the fat free mass or coming from the fat mass and the mid 2010s, the uh, world health organization, the national institutes of health within the United States, the centers for disease control, the European equivalents, the African equivalents and the Asian equivalents have started to, uh, look at not BMI, but holistically body morphology beyond just BMI. So we start looking at what is the fat mass that the person has? What is the muscle mass that the person has? And that's where when we, when we start looking at uh, the World Health Organization still uses the term obesity simply because it's a, a heritage term. It's a term that we've always used to describe people who are uh, over fat. What we've started to, to do within the designation of obesity is we started to look at secondary factors such as percent body fat and waist to hip ratios. And with the body fat as well as the waist to hip ratios, there are distinct correlations with distinct linkages to uh, known non-communicable diseases, metabolic diseases, cancer risks, cardiovascular disease that stems from having extra fat mass within the body mass. And so when we look at, like we we're like we we're briefly mentioning earlier before we started recording, the BMI and the diabetes issues, we tend to see metabolic issues with people who have high BMI plus high body fat, but we don't see those same issues with people who have high BMI but low body fat. And what's even more interesting is that we see people who have diabetes issues that have high body fat but low BMI. And that's where we get to, into that concept of, of over fatness and the fact that it's not necessarily body mass itself, but the fat mass and the signals, the health signals that come about from having changes in fat metabolism, metabolism coming from the fat cells, coming from the adipose tissue. And so when we look at like type two diabetes, and I'm sure this is how everybody talks about, I'm sure this is when you were in uh, looking at some of the nutrition stuff. They talk about in terms of blood sugar issues, right? It's not necessarily blood sugar issues. That's a symptom. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a sign of having metabolic issues. That's not the root cause of diabetic conditions. The root cause of diabetic conditions in, as it relates to the type two diabetes is the excessive inflammation that comes about from over fatness, from having changes in inflammation due to signals, hormone signals coming from immune cells and from adipose cells that change metabolism throughout the body that leads to high levels of glucose in the blood, high, high blood sugar. And the, and the problem is, is that everybody thinks, oh, because I have high blood sugar, I must have diabetes or I have diabetes because I have high blood sugar. And it's a, it's, it's a logical fallacy. It's a post hoc fallacy. Because what we're doing is we're, we're correlating two symptoms together in the metabolic syndrome. And so it's not necessarily the fact that I ha have high circulating levels of sugar leading to the direct 
diabetic condition, mm -hmm. even though we tend to see high blood sugar with people who are expressing diabetic conditions. No, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, the inflammation part, I guess, I think you hear diabetes and you're like, oh, it's because you consume too much sugar because you're uh, quote unquote, like obese. Um, and yeah, a lot of people do like correlate both um, hypertension and, and diabetes. And yeah, for sure. Um, maybe do you want to, I guess I like learn it and then I forget it. The difference between type one and type two diabetes, I guess, if you, if you want to. Um, sure. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a really good, really good <laughs> point because whenever people hear diabetes, they usually are, are thinking, oh, it's a, it's one, one thing. Right. And so we used to actually use two different terms for diabetes. We used to not, we used to not say type one, type two. We used to say juvenile onset diabetes, and then we used to say adult onset diabetes. And so juvenile onset diabetes is what we now reference as type one diabetes. And type one diabetes is where there is some developmental thing that took place. And there's no known cause for this. It's what's referred to as an idiopathic disease. And so idiopathic is just a big fancy word for we don't know what caused it. Mm. Where the cells within the pancreas that should be producing insulin stop producing insulin. And it usually takes about five to 10 years of life before those cells basically are, are no longer there. Mm which is why we don't see the, the people who have the type one diabetes having issues until they're like middle elementary school where they, where they start having high, uh, high blood sugar issues. And they'll start having some of the, the typical symptoms that we see with people who have type one diabetes that will have uh, rapid weight loss issues, changes in mood and uh, fatigue mm. where they have uh, excessive uh, high blood sugar followed by excessive low blood sugar. And so that onset usually is seen as the person is transitioning from toddler age and young juvenile age into middle juvenile age, which is why this was called juvenile onset. The adult onset takes place due to increasing inflammation signals and poor metabolic regulation, where the ever-increasing levels of glucose in the blood due to changes of inflammation causing changes in metabolism slowly wear away the ability for the cells, adipose cells, fat cells, liver cells, and skeletal muscle to respond to insulin, which is referred to as insulin sensitivity, where those cells stop becoming sensitive to insulin. They stop responding to the signal for that insulin sends that says, okay, there's a lot of glucose in the blood. We need to get that glucose out of the blood. They stop responding to those signals because they have competing signals from other either signals within the cells or other hormone signals saying keep the glucose in the blood for cells that need glucose. And the cells that need glucose are the neurons and the immune cells, the blood cells. So the, the red blood cells, the, the erythrocytes, the, the various types of white blood cells, the various types of, of glucocytes need sugar in order to need glucose in particular in order to do their metabolism in order to get their ATP back, in order to be able to do what they need to do in order to survive and do their functions for the body. Because of uh, all of the inflammation that takes place over, over life, people who have what is usually referenced as, as poor lifestyle, 
high sedentary lifestyle, high intake of nutrient lifestyle, they will start to overwhelm the cells with those glucose signals, with those insulin signals. And what is up happens is the pancreas starts to produce more and more insulin. And cells don't like to work to overwork themselves, just like we don't like to overwork work ourselves. We want to take breaks every once in a while. But the problem is, is that the cells of the body can't do that if they're constantly being sent signals to say, hey, you have to work, you have to work, you have to work. And over time, those, those same cells that, would, that should be producing insulin stop producing insulin. And that's where we start to go from having a change of insulin sensitivity to having type 2 diabetes. And so type 2 diabetes is, is typically indicated by having two, sick, two particular things in the blood, high amounts of insulin and high amounts of glucose. And we usually diagnose it through um, what's referred to as a glucose tolerance test, where we have the person do a fasting for a period of time. We will then give them a large amount of glucose. Yeah, I remember you telling us that. I'm like, eh. We give them a large amount of glucose to consume. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we track what happens to the glucose and to the insulin over the next few hours. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we're seeing how well does the pancreas respond to the high glucose signals and how well do the cells respond to the insulin signals. Mm -hmm. And so if we have high insulin and high glucose and we fail, the glucose tolerance tests, that is one of the signals that say, hey, type 2 diabetes is a good likelihood. With the type 2 diabetes, we tend to try to treat it within what's referred to as a lifestyle treatment, where we're not going to give them insulin, but what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to change the uh, hormones within the body from being inflammation hormones to being non-inflammation hormones. Okay. And that's where we start to do lifestyle interventions. We start to try to get the person to become more active. Mm -hmm. We try to uh, work on dietary changes, try to uh, usually uh, have them follow a low glycemic or a diabetic diet. Mm -hmm. We can go ahead and pharmacologically treat some of the type 2 diabetes syndromes and some of the type 2 diabetes symptoms. We've heard there's a big push within the weight loss community towards using some of those type two diabetes medicines. Mm. And that's where all of the, mm. the, um, can't remember the top of my head, the, the name of the, the drug, uh, but it's being used now as an off label weight loss drug. And so what, mm. and the drug is a, uh, drug that mimics a secondary hormone known as glucagon like peptide GLP. And what it's, what the GLP is doing is it's blocking glucagon from causing more glucose to enter the blood. And so one of the things that people who have type 2 diabetes have is it's not just the ability to, main, to regulate glucose getting into the cells, but also breaking down glycogen stores or producing glucose from glucose metabolites in the liver that they have issues with too. And so what ends up happening for the, for the person with the type 2 diabetes is they will have both issues with insulin and issues with glucagon, which means that they cannot regulate their blood glucose levels very well. And so what the GLP hormone does is it blocks glucagon receptors and keeps blood glucose levels normal. But the other thing that GLP does is that it helps regulate my hunger responses. It heads upstairs to, heads upstairs to, to hey dummy. To, to our areas in the brain that 
regulate the our automatic things like, hey, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it says, okay, we don't need to eat. We have enough of our fuels. We have enough of our nutrients to maintain what we need to maintain. And so the use of the GLP treatment, the pharmacological treatment, the drug treatment with GLP, one of the, one of the side effects to doing this is moderate weight loss. And it's moderate weight loss through regulation of hunger, as well as uh, clearance of sugars by minimizing the amount of extra glucose that gets released from the liver. And so with type 2 diabetes, it's not necessarily a lack of insulin. It's a lack of the ability to respond to insulin. Whereas with type 1 diabetes, you don't have the cells that can produce insulin available to produce insulin. And so for the type 1 diabetic, we have to put them on an insulin regimen. We have to we have to have them either through a mechanical pump, be injected with insulin, or through a manual syringe and needle, inject insulin. With the type 2 diabetic, if I have that insulin sensitivity issue for too long of a period of time, the insulin producing cells start to act like type one issues where they stop producing the insulin. Mm -hmm. And that's where the type two diabetic over time can become insulin dependent where they have to actually inject themselves with insulin. And that's one of the things that if you uh, follow any of the, the medical political stuff where a lot of the people are trying to regulate how much insulin costs. And that's because of the number of people who are either insulin dependent type one diabetic or insulin dependent type two diabetic. And one of the secondary characteristics that we get into this diabetic discussion is the discussion of insulin dependency. And so sometimes we'll reference stuff as being insulin dependent diabetes versus non-insulin dependent diabetes. And so the insulin dependent diabetic is someone who has to have an insulin injection. Whereas the non-insulin dependent diabetic is someone who is starting to express diabetic conditions, usually the type two style of diabetes, but we're treating it not with insulin injections, but with other methods of control. And so for both the type one and the type two, one of the things that we've started to use in terms of medical equipment are the uh, transdermal monitors. And so I don't know if you've seen that usually we'll wear it like on the, yeah, on on the arm TV. Mm Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks like a little like a uh, uh, sticker mm-hmm. and it's little sticker has a little probe on it that mm-hmm. will go into the skin. And what it does is, is it measures circulating levels of glucose and sends signals to a monitor. So if the person knows if they are um, having blood excessive high, excessively high or excessively low blood glucose. So that um, monitor um, that you place on your arm, is that, um, well, I assume it's kind of more new, right? Or has that been around? Uh, because opposed to that, you would actually have to take your blood and yeah, mm-hmm. and so uh, those I want to say within the last five ten years have mm-hmm. become the predominant means for monitoring blood glucose. Mm-hmm. It used to be where you would have to do a finger prick, right? And then you put a drop of blood onto the monitor and the monitor would figure out what the level, what the concentration of glucose in the blood happens to be. Mm-hmm. And so this becomes just an easier means to, to monitor it. Uh, some of the newer pumps that they have, particularly for the type one diabetic mm-hmm. actually functions almost as a uh, um, 
bionic uh, pancreas hmm. where it actually has monitors within the pump mm-hmm. that will measure what is the glucose levels and will uh, modulate insulin levels being uh, pumped out from the pump based off of those glucose levels. That's advanced. That's cool. Yeah. The, the problem with the, one of the problems with that is that based off of what we're doing, glucose levels can vary quite, quite rapidly. Right. And so one of the things we talk about is for, particularly for like controlling glucose levels for the, for the type two diabetic mm-hmm. is to do exercise. But the problem with exercise is if I'm excessively active, I'll actually send signals to tell the liver to produce more glucose. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that can happen for the person who is exercising to control their glucose levels is that they may do their exercise and then they'll check their blood glucose levels and they may be higher yeah. after exercise. Interesting. And that's simply because of the signals that come out from exercise that say, okay, we need more glucose. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to metabolism. And so when we're exercising, we're going to need a lot more fuel because yeah. our metabolism is going to be slightly faster during the exercise portion. And so because our metabolism is going to be slightly faster during the exercise port during the exercise portion, we're going to need more fuel. And the way in which we get more fuel is we send signals to the liver to say, take the glucose metabolites, make glucose back, go to the, to the muscles and say, take those glycogen stores and break them up. Mm-hmm. And so all of those signals will raise glucose levels during exercise to meet the glucose need for the body. But the problem is, is that if I'm exercising, 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 we don't kind of taper our exercise. We're either exercising or we're not exercising. And so because we're not tapering it, it's we're going to go from having a whole bunch of need to having no need whatsoever. And so what we'll see is we'll see this kind of slow rise of glucose. And all of a sudden we'll see the spike of glucose coming right at the, right at the end of exercise. And that spike of glucose, people can get kind of scared about. But it's nothing to be scared about because what will happen is that over time, that glucose will start to, to taper back down to normal levels. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, didn't, I feel like you it makes sense, but like that's not something that you think about. No. And, and the other thing that, that, that we usually don't think about, and it's stuff that's in a couple of the, the um, uh, passages that I put up on, this, on the sub stack, and it's also in the, the discussion on the, uh, carb, on the carbo-loading mm-hmm. talk is that we only need insulin to get glucose into the cells in just those three cells, adipose, skeletal muscle, and liver. And it's only going to work on one of a number of ways to get glucose into the cells. And so even though we talk about insulin being very important for for getting glucose into the cells, it's only going to be necessary for getting glucose into the cells when glucose is either being excessively consumed within a meal or when we have excessive levels of glucose in the blood. And so there's a whole bunch of other ways to get the, the carbohydrates, the glucose into the cells beyond just insulin, even though that's kind of how everybody likes to, to picture it because that's how it's been advertised. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is really cool. I mean, I feel like, especially now, like in nutrition, you know, you, you're like kind of learning, but just to, it's a it's a quick course. Mm-hmm. So like I said, like I'll learn about the obesity, underweight, overweight, um, diabetes, hypertension, like, okay, next kind of thing. And I don't mm-hmm. really like, step back and like, okay, what did I just like, learn? Yes. 
and, um, and, and there's a there's a lot of uh as with everything there's a lot of, of myths and misconceptions out there for sure because and this is where i, I don't like the 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 terminology where we we as an ed- educators we try to dumb down stuff but we're not really trying to dumb down stuff what we tend to do is we tend to oversimplify mm-hmm. and when we, when we oversimplify we we can particularly from the from the scientific perspective is that we give a false image to the to the complexity of what's there mm-hmm. and so a lot of times we talk about oh it's like a it's like this one thing is going to cause this other thing to take place but as as we've talked about there's so, there's so much complexity within mm-hmm. the human body and within the physio, within the physiological regulation of the human body that to say that this one thing is the root cause for everything is is a very poor explanation on the part of the, of the educator um i feel like for me to bring up this it's kind of like a big switch but right now i'm we did minerals vitamins trace minerals all that but um okay niacin mm-hmm. like uh what is that a vitamin b yep um i didn't know that that's nad and nadh yeah, yeah. um so, so the, the n and yeah. maybe it was like mentioned maybe you even mentioned it but like i didn't realize that these are you know, um, riboflavin is FAD, FAD. Like we talked mm-hmm. about this, the these cycles, and I'm like, I didn't realize that these vitamins are so like actually in all of these metabolism cycles and stuff. So I thought that was um, really interesting when I was reading about these vitamins. So I don't know if that's something you might want to, yeah, and, and maybe it's actually... another topic or another time. But and so, so when we talk about like the vitamins and stuff what the vitamins are is that they there are cofactors there are things that we need in metabolism that are not the actual reactant and product okay and so like like nad and nadhh plus fadh fadh2 those are cofactors within all of the metabolic processes they're and and they're they are uh metabolites of the vitamins that we have to consume and so like things like riboflavin niacin are going to be uh providing the metabolites that we need in order to be able to do atp metabolism to get Mm -hmm. the energy molecule back to the cells and when we usually talk about those factors within nutrition and within metabolism once again goes back to the we tend to oversimplify we talk about, oh, we need these for metabolic purposes, right. but we don't go into further detail as to why we need those in metabolic. Right. And so when we're doing a lot of particularly ATP metabolism, we're doing a lot of reduction oxidation reactions, redox reactions. Mm-hmm. And when redox reactions take place, if the speed of the reaction is faster than the movement of electrons and protons within the reaction, we can start to develop uh, oxidative species, radicals. What the riboflavin, what the niacin is able to do is it's able to become reduced without becoming radicalized. And so 
when we talk about reduction and we talk about oxidation, we're talking about gaining or losing electrons, gaining or losing protons. And so when we gain stuff, we get reduced. When we lose stuff, we become oxidized. And so if we look at like NAD, which is going to come from our, our which is one of the metabolites coming from the niacin side of the vitamins. When it becomes reduced within the energetic pathways, it becomes NADH or in some, some references, NADH H plus. Mm -hmm. That's the reduced form of it. And what the mitochondria within all the cells are able to do is able to use those hydrogens on the NADH or on the FADH2, and it's able to oxidize them to put them back into their, in, into their NAD form and their FADH form to be further reduced again. And it's able to take those, those hydrogens and it's able to reduce other molecules within what's referred to as the electron transport chain. Mm -hmm. electron transport system. Every time we do those re reduction and oxidation reactions, anytime we move the hydrogens and the electrons around within our body, within the cells of our body, we may radicalize certain elements and certain molecules. And the radicalization is simply where the hydrogen ion or the electron gets kind of tied up with other molecules where it can't keep up with the molecule where the hydrogen should be or the electron should be. And what we get is we get what's referred to as, as a reactive oxidative species. Mm -hmm. Some of the books and some of the references that we have to reactive oxidative species, we'll call it reactive oxygen species. And the reason why we'll say reactive oxygen species is to the fact that we'll see a lot of ROSs develop within aerobic metabolism, but oct and where oxygen is one of the elements within some of the elements that will be involved with redox reactions. But oxygen is not the only one within our metabolism that can undergo the radicalization, the redoxing. We can have reactive oxygen species, we can have reactive nitrogen species. And so instead of saying ROS, RNS, reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species, we simply will say reactive oxidative species mm. or free radicals is sometimes how we'll, we'll talk about it as well. And this is where it gets kind of confused because we're talking about the same thing. We're using three different words. Yeah. In order to, con to control those ROSs, we have other substances that can, very similar to the NAD and the FADH, can become... Uh, an acceptor without becoming radicalized. I see. And so the other substances that can act as receptors without or acceptors without becoming radicalized are the antioxidant species. And so when we look at our, our vitamins, the antioxidant species that we have in our, in our vitamins that we usually talk about are mm -hmm. like the vitamin D, the vitamin E, the vitamin C. I see. Those, those are the typically discussed antioxidant vitamins. But then mm -hmm. we also have other antioxidants like CoQ. So like if you go to the, to the health food stores or to the, to the vitamin aisles in the supermarkets, you'll see things like CoQ10. Or they'll talk about vitamins being like uh, antioxidant or uh, heart healthy vitamins. Mm -hmm. And the reason we talk about the, the vitamins as being antioxidant or heart healthy is that when the uh, radicals, when the free radicals are able to move around the body, they get sent out from the cells into the blood and will circulate around the body. Mm -hmm. 
every molecule that the radical interacts with, it wants to try to stabilize itself. Right. And so when we talk about the reactive oxi oxidative species, we have to go into the atom and we have to, and this, and this is where we have to go back to how electrons move around. And the way in which electrons move around is that they work like pistons in your engine, which means that as they move, they're going in like piston motion and they go in opposite directions to the paired electron that it has within the atom itself. With the radical, we only have one piston moving. Right. And that one piston causes a wobble to take place. And the atom and the molecule don't want to wobble. They want to be balanced just like right. everything else. Right. And so what it's going to do is it's going to try to pair up with every molecule it interacts with. And the problem with this is, is that because of the forces of nature, the interactions of electrons within molecules causes a shearing effect, kind mm -hmm. of a like dragging your hand across the desk effect. And that causes small little damage to the molecules of all of the cells that it's interacting with. And so people who have large amounts of ROS, what we call oxidative stress, will have uh, stiffening of arteries, atherosclerosis. And in that stiffening of the arteries and atherosclerosis, if we have immune response with the ROS, with the oxidative stress, will lead to small plaque formation within the arteries. Immune cells cl and platelets clumping around where the ROSs mm. have been interacting with the cells of the blood vessels. And so that's where we start looking at people who have, go back to talking about the, the over fat people, the people who have too much body fat that's causing large amounts of inflammation. They tend to also have large amounts of, of oxidative stress, large amounts of ROSs in circulation. And that's where we get that linkage between over fatness with cardiovascular disease. It's really interesting. I didn't um, know that the plaque formation and mm -hmm. such um, is, do you measure oxidative stress? I don't know if that's like a, like, how do you? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good question. And there's no real way to measure oxidative stress outside no. of looking at uh, inflammation markers. Okay. Hormones that trigger inflammation mm -hmm. with high amounts of uh, from ROS exposure. Okay. Uh, it's very difficult to do a chemical analysis of ROSs. Mm -hmm. You can measure molecules that we know will trigger ROS accumulation. I see. But we can't say, oh, simply because we have all these uh, chemicals in the blood that you have high oxidative stress. I see. But we can look at stress markers coming from the mitochondria mm -hmm. because when we have large amounts of ROS, we tend to overuse the antioxidants and the uh, principal site for production of antioxidants are the mitochondria within the body. And this is where we have, this is where we're at like a catch 22 with, with our diet. We want to consume things like niacin and riboflavin and vitamin A and vitamin D and vitamin E and vitamin C and all of the antioxidant vitamins, mm -hmm. but we don't want to overconsume them right? because what happens is that as we start to consume more of those products, the cells say, okay, I don't have to produce it because it's in, it's already here in the body. Mm -hmm. 
And so what it does is it starts to slow down the rate of producing the antioxidants. Mm. And so you if you have too much of or too little of, because then your body's like, oh, I don't need to produce it myself, you said. Yep. And so once it happens, as I start to slowly reduce the amount that I'm producing, mm. if I also stop consuming those those antioxidants, all of a sudden I'm now in an oxidative stress condition. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And so one of the things that if we do measure uh, low levels of antioxidants in the in the blood, mm-hmm. and so one of the things that can happen is that uh, you do a blood draw and you look for uh, circulating levels of different vitamins. Okay. And if I have low levels of the antioxidant vitamins in circulation, that's an indication that I may have oxidative stress taking place. Okay. But once again, those vitamins can be used for more than just antioxidant purposes. Mm-hmm. But if I have a large amount of oxidative stress, I will be using those vitamins for antioxidant purposes. Makes sense. And not for the other purposes. And not for the other purposes. Yeah, this vitamin stuff is really cool. Mm-hmm. And that's where and we've talked about this a number of times off off recording here about when we when we eat, making sure that we have rainbows on our on our plates. Right. Because when we have rainbows on our plates, we're gonna make we're, we are gonna make sure that we have all of the necessary nutrients including the vitamins and the minerals so we've talked about some vitamin stuff we talked about the diabetes and the bmi stuff Mm 